I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Thank you, Whitney. You know, following Christ produces questions in the minds of those who observe your life. And this is for a few reasons. One is that we are just... Curious creatures, are we not? I mean, you're born curious. You don't have to teach children to ask questions. They just do. Because they want to know and understand all there is that they see. But the second reason that following Christ produces questions is that there are times that as you follow Christ, the things that you do are so countercultural that it produces questions. Because the things that you do that he wants you to do, you know, following Christ's commands in the scripture, they seem very countercultural. They go against the norm. Let me just give you one example of that. Uh, there was a man who was born in the late 1800s. His name was William Borden. And William Borden was the heir of a great fortune, the Borden fortune, in Chicago. And they made all their money through uh, dairy products and real estate. And uh, this this man, William, graduated high school at 16, and for a gift, his parents gave him a trip around the world. Now, this is the early 1900s, a trip around the world. Now, just imagine sending your teenager around the world. <laughs> we wouldn't do that today, probably, much less back then, but they did. They, they gave him a trip around the world, and you can imagine all the things you could get into around the world as a teenager, but William, as he was traveling, he became burdened for those who did not know Christ. And so upon returning to the States, he enrolled in Yale University. And while he was there, he had a great ministry for Christ among college students. The freshman year, he started these prayer groups and Bible study groups that grew to to having 150 freshmen in it by the first year. And by the time he graduated from Yale, there were a thousand students involved in the ministry that he had started. And that's remarkable considering there were only 1,300 students at Yale at the time. But he graduates Yale, and then he enrolls in Princeton University to go to seminary. And it's through this process that he really becomes burdened for a specific people. And it's the the Muslim people found in North China. 
And so as he narrows his focus at what God may have him to do, he decides to give up his fortune, gives away his millions, which in today's terms would be more like billions, and decides to go into the missionary field to seek out, to know the people group in North China and to give them the gospel message. And so after graduating Princeton, he goes and he uh, travels to Egypt to learn the language. But while in Egypt, he contracts cerebral meningitis and dies one year later. I mean, one month later, sorry. He dies one month later. Now, the question is, why, why did he give up his fortune? What made him do that? What made him go the route that he did? And I think the best way to sum up the answer to that question is by reading what is wrote on his tombstone. It says, A man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him. Kindly affection with brotherly love, fervent in spirit serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of saints, in honor, preferring others. And now listen to this last line. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. In the back of his Bible, he had three phrases written. The first was no reserves. The second, no retreats. And the last one, no regrets. This man, even though he was a young man, had set, up, had set apart Christ as Lord in his heart. And he had committed to follow him wherever Christ may lead. Now, that may not be the direct route God takes you in as a follower of Christ. You know, giving up all your material possessions and going to a foreign country. But Christ is calling each of us to set apart himself as Lord in our lives. Now, here's a question for you. Have you ever seen a Christian do something that made you ask, why did he do that? Why did she do that? Or have you ever done something for Christ and people say, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> Why would you do that? I remember when I was in high school, I had just become a Christian and I started going to church and I, I, I began you know, seeing that people would give money at church. And I thought, that's strange. Why would you... Why would you give money at church? That doesn't make any sense to me. And you know, my concept of Christianity was very individualistic. You know, it's it's me and God. Christ died for me. He has a plan for my life. I didn't really see my responsibility for those around me. You know, so the idea of giving money and helping to fund different ministries just didn't really make sense. But the more I grew in Christ, the more I realized, okay, you know, as I give resources and time, it furthers the gospel not only among the church family but also outside the community of the church, to those around me. But at the time, at that moment, when I was young in my faith, I just, I asked, you know, why would you do that? And perhaps there have been things in your life where you had, you had done something, you made decisions, and people would wonder, why in the world would they do such a thing? Well, as we look at our passage this morning, what we're going to see is that as you seek to live for Christ, several things happen. And you receive several different responses. And one possible scenario is that as you seek to live for Christ, you may actually experience peace. And I'm not talking about inner peace with God. 
Obviously, you experience that through your faith in Christ. You're forgiven of your sin. You're reconciled to God. But what I'm talking about is following Christ many times, and for most of you as followers of Christ in this country, in this city, you, you've probably experienced a fair amount of peace around you, with those around you. You probably have not experienced great opposition to your faith. And we see that even alluded to in the, in the letter of 1 Peter when he says in verse 13 in chapter 3, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if you seek what is good and right, things probably are going to go well with you as far as your relationships with other people. And he even talks about how the role of government here is to punish evil and to promote those who do good. And so if, if government is functioning properly, then you will experience peace for doing what is right in God's sight. He even says that by being good and godly wives, that you may even see your husbands come to faith in Christ. He talks about how in the church you even experience encouragement and goodness and peace and support. And even if you think about Jesus and his earthly ministry here, oftentimes we look back at those encounters that, that Jesus had with certain people where there was great opposition, but if you read the Gospels, you realize that Jesus also experienced a lot of just good times with people, peaceful times, times of fellowship, times of prayer and celebration and healing, and just being with friends. He experienced all of that, not only great opposition, yet at the same time, it wouldn't be a mistake to think that if you are in Christ, you are entitled to an easy life. It would be a mistake to assume that if you are in Christ, that God is going to allow you to experience the fullness of the world to come in the world that is. Because in order for that to happen, creation needs to be mended and creation needs to be purged of the sin and the effects of sin that has broken it. <clears throat> Therefore, until Jesus returns and completely renews creation, there is a high probability that you will experience suffering or opposition as you seek to follow Christ. Now, now first of all, let me give you a definition before we jump into the passage here. I want to give you a definition of suffering as he uses it in this passage. I think if you had to sum up this, this, word, this word, I think what you would find is that this word means it's, it's being opposed or receiving some type of punishment or unjust treatment for doing what is right. If you're doing what is right and good in God's sight and you're receiving some type of punishment for that, some type of unjust treatment. And this may be verbal attack. It may be some type of social alienation. It could be some type of uh, vocational or economic disadvantage, or it even could you know, be physical harm. And the Apostle Peter writes in verse 14, he says, But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed or you are blessed. And he goes on to say in verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, with this said... In the world, if we're living for Christ, we may experience peace, but we also may experience opposition and suffering. So how do we navigate that? What do we do if we come up against that? How do we endure and make our way through that in a way that's pleasing to the Lord? Well, Peter gives us some direction here in the following verses. First of all, he says, in our hearts, 
We must set apart Christ as Lord, as holy, as unique, as set apart. And this idea of honoring Christ in our hearts, in verses 14 and 15, he says it like this. He says, have no fear of them, meaning those who oppose you, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And the idea of honoring Christ is this idea of setting him apart as unique, as your Lord. He's the one, the only one that you ultimately follow. It's recognizing who Christ is and then responding appropriately. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, many of you are familiar with this prayer, Matthew 6. When he taught his disciples to pray, he said, as he prayed, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But another way to say that would be, Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. It's the same word that Peter uses in this passage to say that we need to set apart, we need to honor Christ in our hearts as holy. Because when it comes down to it, and just think about this, if, if you have not set apart Christ as Lord in your life, as, as unique as the one you will follow, then why do you care about doing what He wants you to do? Why would you even walk into a disadvantage? You wouldn't. It wouldn't make any sense. But if in fact you do have Christ as Lord in your life, then you will seek to follow Him even in the midst of disadvantage. Because if you have not set apart Christ in your life, when you seek to do what He wants you to do, and then you experience friction or opposition, you're not going to endure it because you don't have the foundation. You'll be like Peter just outside the courtyard when Jesus was arrested. And they asked him, do you know Jesus? Weren't you with Jesus? He said, oh no, I wasn't with him. You know, you'd be like that. If you have not set apart Christ in your life, when opposition comes, when friction comes, you will abandon him. But if you're like Peter, who later tasted the grace and forgiveness of Christ, then you will, even in the midst of great suffering and persecution and disadvantage, you will seek to do what the Lord would have you to do. And if that's you this morning, maybe in your life you've experienced opposition and you gave in. And you you did not pursue the avenue that Christ wanted you to pursue. Maybe that's you. And I would encourage you to taste of God's forgiveness and grace through Christ by setting apart Christ as Lord in your life. And in face of opposition, the second truth that Peter gives us is that we do not need to be fearful or need to be troubled by those who oppose us. He writes in verse 14, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. He's telling us that we don't need to to fear men. We don't need to be overly anxious about different scenarios we find ourselves in. And one man put it like this. He said, To break the throttling grip of fear... We must confess God's lordship with more than mental assent. We must confess it with our heart's devotion. Setting him apart as Lord means bowing before him in the adoration of praise. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. I love that last phrase. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. 
I mean, just think about yourself. Is Christ the object of your praise? See, if He's not, if Christ is not the object of your praise, then when you, when you come up against uh, the opinions of those around you that is less favorable, if, you, if you're seeking to set apart their approval of you as Lord, then when you come to a situation where following Christ is going to, to gain a frown from those around you, then you're going to shrink back. Because you set apart the approval of man above Christ in your life. And just think about yourself. Whatever you may set apart in your life, whatever calls you to be overly anxious or fearful, as you experience fear or great anxiety, perhaps it's pointing you to something you've set apart in your life as Lord, other than Christ. And so Peter says, you know, if you set apart Christ in your life, then you have no need to fear man or be troubled by them. Thirdly, he says that we must be able to explain why we do what we do. Which this makes sense. You need to be, William Borden, you need to be able to say, okay, why did you give up all that money and, and take such a risk in that day and time to sail across the world? Why would you do that? You need to be able to explain that to those around you. Peter tells us that when we seek to live for Christ, people will begin to ask questions. Sometimes, They'll keep those questions to themselves. Sometimes they'll let you know what they are. And this is what he says in verses 14 and 15. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The word there for defense is where we get our word apology. Now, the way we use apology is... You know, for example, if one of my children, hypothetically speaking, do something wrong you know, to maybe another one of their siblings. And I would say, you need to apologize. What am I saying? I'm saying, you need to admit where you were wrong and ask forgiveness. But that's not how this word is used in the New Testament. It's not an apology for doing something wrong. It's a defense. So think about a courtroom. Think about an innocent person in a courtroom, pleading their case of why they are not guilty. And so they're telling you, okay, this is what I do, this is why I do it, etc. It's where we get the word apologetics from, if, you've, from, if you are familiar with that. So we are to give an apology, we're to give a reason, we're to tell them, okay, this, this is why I do what I do. This is why I, uh, I'm, I'm seeking to remain sexually pure until marriage. This is why. It's not just because I think it's pragmatically a good idea. It's because I read it in the scripture and I think God wants what's best for me. And I'm just, even though I may not feel like it all the time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that because I think that's what God would have me to do. It means I'm going to tell the truth when I'm in those situations where telling the truth may be at a disadvantage for me. Why? Not just because it's pragmatic or I'm trying to, you know, be a goody two-shoes, but it's, I think this is what God wants. And I've set apart Christ in my life, and so that's the direction I want to go. And so we need to be able to give an explanation, but we're to give it with gentleness and respect. You know, when you tell someone about what Christ has done for you and why you do what you do, you don't do it like you're on a talk radio show. 
okay, or on Hannity and Combs or something, where it's just always at this level and you talk as fast as possible and there's very little respect for those around you. But we do it with gentleness and respect. You know, you can be bold without being harsh. And that's what we're, we're called to do here. Out of reverence for God, we're to be gentle with those around us. In other words, we're to speak out of a position of humility. Because if you set apart Christ in your life, I mean, what have you done to earn that? Nothing. It's all by God's grace. You've brought nothing to the table. And so, where is your boasting? Is it because you're so smart? You're so good? I mean, where's your, your boasting is in Christ, what He's done. Therefore, we can come to those around us, even those we disagree with, from a position of humility, gentleness. Even if we disagree, we can do so in a respectful way. The fourth truth that helps us endure suffering for following Christ is that sin will not go unnoticed or unpunished. And what I mean by sin here is basically building your life apart from God. is doing whatever you're doing, good or bad, apart from having Christ set as Lord in your life. It's doing anything with you on the throne of your life and not in submission to Christ in your life. And we need to see that sin will not go unpunished or unnoticed. Therefore, when you face opposition and you suffer for something you should not be suffering for, ideally, God takes notice of that. And he says in, Peter says in verse 16, he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, those who speak against God's people will be put to shame. And there's one of two ways this is going to happen. Either the one who is actually committing the sin will be put to shame, will be punished, or the sin that was committed will be put on Christ as He is shamed and as He is punished. Or He was shamed or He was punished. And so to demonstrate the justice of God... Peter takes us back, as he often does, to the example of Christ in verses 18 through 22. And we see at least three truths here about what Christ experienced. The first one is in verse 18. We see that Christ suffered unjustly in the sense that he was the innocent one. Verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Christ suffered. He was the innocent one. He suffered unjustly. Second, we see that God judged sin. Because the suffering that Peter's talking about here is the suffering that Christ experienced on the cross. And he's saying here that Christ, when He suffered, this wasn't just some arbitrary suffering. It wasn't just a matter of Christ being in the wrong place at the wrong time. This was a voluntary suffering. This was a giving up of Himself. This was a substitutionary suffering. In verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And then back in chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says, He bore Himself, I mean, He bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. 
So the question is, why did, did, why did he do what he did? Why did Christ do what he did? Well, the third truth is that Christ gave himself up for us so that we can be brought to God. And we see it in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So what Peter's saying here is that the only way that sin is dealt with in your life in a way that you can have a relationship with God, that you can be forgiven, that you can experience peace with God, is through the death and resurrection of Christ. And you participate in that by setting Christ apart as Lord in your life. And you do that by faith. Trusting that that's exactly what Christ has accomplished for you. So we see why Jesus did what he did. Now let me ask you this. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Day in, day out. What's the motivation? What's the driving force? Is it because Christ has been set apart in your life that you seek to live for Christ? Or are you living for self? Or are you living for someone else? Has Christ been set apart in your life? The only way for us to do what God wants us to do And to even persevere through opposition is if Christ is set apart. If He's the one in first place, if He's the Lord of our lives. And my prayer this morning for each of us is that it would be said of each of us, like it was said of William Borden, that apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of this life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You. Thankful for what you've done. Lord, we bring nothing to the table. We recognize that. We read in your word that all have sinned and fall short of your glory. We read in your word that no one seeks after God. We know that we cannot attain what Christ has attained for us apart from him. Holy Spirit, I pray you would search our hearts this morning. Lord, show us areas of our lives that we are not setting Christ apart as Lord. Lord, reveal to us our fears, our worries, and show us how they're linked to the things of the world and perhaps how they're linked to us not trusting in what Christ has done. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would apply the truths of your word to our heart deeply. That as people see us live our lives, And not just hear the words we say, but see the actions of our lives that they would say, I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. There's no explanation apart from Christ. And that's our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.